This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest philosophers to your fingertips. With more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us with the Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes. And Steve, uh, the Iran issue is front and center in the press and in politics. But I have been amazed. I, I thought that uh, Marie Harf had nothing left when it came to dodging questions. And wow, she has shown an amazing political agility. Yeah, I mean, she was really, just the fact that she was left standing at the end of the uh, press briefing yesterday, it was 15 minutes worth of um, questions put to her, mainly by Matt Lee of the Associated Press and Elise Lavitt of CNN, really not asking difficult questions, asking basic questions about why Marie Harf had gone on this Twitter tirade, taking on David Sanger of the New York Times and suggesting that his front page report from earlier this week was misleading that report, which said that Iran uh, had kept too much, uh, had had too much uh, uranium, more uranium than they should, and that they weren't likely to be able to get rid of it in time to meet the June 30th deadline. And Marie Harf went on this sort of Twitter tirade. She took 15 minutes worth of these questions yesterday, and really it was, she was, I think, overmatched as being generous. Uh, But the premise is, the question is, are the Iranians on a path even to comply with what this outline of a deal would involve? And do they have any interest? Because it's very easy to look at this and say, see, there you go. They're going to keep enriching and they don't care what they agree to. Somehow they'll either find a loophole or simply hide what they're doing. And this seems to highlight the two issues that a lot of folks have, Steve. One is, can you trust the Iranians? And then two, can you trust the Obama administration <laughs> to keep an eye on the Iranians? Right. No, and I, and I think that's actually, in in many respects, the key point. I mean, if you look at the arguments that Marie Harf was making yesterday, I mean, what was so striking about the 15 minutes was not just her inability to really answer the question substantively, but her her eagerness, almost 15 minutes uninterrupted of giving the benefit of the doubt to the Iranian regime. I mean, as if the Iranian, as if Iranian behavior over the past several decades doesn't matter, um, she kept saying, you know, things like, "Well, the Iranians have been in compliance the entire time. Uh, they haven't cheated. They haven't done anything uh, that has made us sort of look askance at them." And it's just not true. I mean, at one point she actually said, I wrote it down, I don't know if I've got the wording in front of me, but she actually said, um, look, the Iranians haven't done anything, um, anything that we consider, um, here it is, can't, it's, the Iranians, the, the, the interim deal said that the Iranians couldn't install and use new centrifuges and they haven't. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, the Iranian 
the, the original deal or the interim deal said that there would be no new centrifuge activity. The Iranians engaged in new centrifuge activity in November of 2013. The IAEA called them on it. The Obama administration actually asked the Iranians about it. The Iranians at that point stopped uh, feeding this certain kind of uh, hexafluoride into these new centrifuges. And uh, it was basically a violation. I mean, everybody understood that it was a violation. If it wasn't a violation, the Iranians wouldn't have stopped. And yet, you have Marie Harf in this briefing yesterday saying there's never been any kind of a violation. They've always been in, in compliance. You have uh, Obama administration officials earlier giving interviews in which they said that, well, yeah, maybe they violated the interim agreement, but it was, quote unquote, probably a mistake is what they told uh, Bloomberg News. You know, you've, you've got the Obama administration making excuses for the Iranians when they are in violation. It does, I think, lead to your question, which is the central question. What will they do when they're in, in violation of these bigger things? And the answer, as we all know, is they will find a way to explain it away or make further concessions. But normally when that's your plan, which is to take a bad deal just to preserve your political agenda and paper over it, you try to hide the I'll paper over it part until after the deal. This is, you know, the the uh, girlfriend catching the boyfriend with someone else, some other girl's underwear before the wedding. You already know there's a problem here. And then her answer is, oh, don't worry about it. They're probably his. Yeah, what? I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, if you, if you reduce what, what she's essentially arguing, and look, I mean, it's not just Marie Harf. I mean, Josh Ernest has said effectively the same thing. So this is the administration line. And if you take the administration line and, and you reduce it to its essence, what they're saying, in effect, is, okay, yes, the Iranians are, are sort of cheating now, but they've committed to stop cheating in the future, in, in the future and we believe them on that. And it's like, it's like watching a heroin addict shoot up in front of you and listening to the heroin addict say, I'm quitting drugs. I am not doing this stuff anymore in three weeks. And choosing to believe sure. the addict rather than believe what you're seeing. I want to ask you about something that um, – a point that was made on the uh, Fox uh, special report panel. And I'm pretty sure you were there, and I think it was Maura Eliason who was talking about how bad this deal is. And she said, you know, everybody knows that if President Obama makes this deal and it blows up the, new, the Iranians go nuclear, you know, they are cheating, even one, two, three years from now – that this will be his deal and it will be his legacy. And she was just shaking her head because she simultaneously sees, A, it's a bad deal, and B, he's going to take it. Am I understanding that correctly? What are people in Washington that you talk to saying about you know, the day after the deal is made? In other words, okay, great, you get a day of glory in your mind, but then what happens when the Iranians turn out to be the Iranians? Yeah, this, this is what was most perplexing and what Mara was, was talking about was the president's assertion in a recent interview that if the deal fails, he will own it. And it was an interesting thing for the president to say. I don't think he intended to say it. I don't think that they, when they prepped him for the radio interview, assuming they did that or the, whatever interview this was, they didn't say, Mr. President, you should go out and make clear that you own this if it fails. Um, because they've taken great pains, I think, to avoid having the president own the Iranian bomb. You know, one of the reasons that I think many people, even people who who support the deal, uh, believe that they created this 10-year uh, time frame for the Iranians to to uh, re you know remain a year away from breakout supposedly um, over the next 10 years was precisely so that President Obama wouldn't own 
the Iranian bomb when it happens. So it was an odd thing for him to say. I share Mara's puzzlement. I, it, was, it was a bizarre way for the president to handle it. And speaking of the politics of the Iran deal, where is Hillary Clinton on this? And I mean on two levels. One is, first of all, where is she on the deal? You know, this is something that she's when it when the president embraces it, will she? And then secondly, a broader question, is she being hurt by this mess, which no matter how she tries to, to portray herself, it, anything that happens regarding foreign policy in the Obama administration is going to be linked back to her? Well, the first question first, you know, there have been, I would characterize them as rumors. There have long been rumors that Hillary Clinton was going to distance herself from this final deal. Um, You know, you've seen people sort of reading tea leaves. There was, uh, Haim Saban gave an interview in which he sort of cryptically alluded to the possibility that Hillary was not really that excited about the emerging deal and, and could distance herself from what we're seeing uh, negotiated in Geneva, nobody really knows. I mean, that's the irony here. You have somebody who's a leading presidential candidate who refuses to talk to the media. So we don't have an opportunity to ask her. I think it's relevant what the the likely nominee for the Democratic Party believes about something so consequential, but we're not getting it. Um, As for the politics of it, I don't think there's any doubt that she'll own it. She can try to distance herself from the, the final deal if that's what she in fact chooses to do. But the fact is she was Secretary of State for four years. She and her advisors uh, laid the groundwork for this deal. They were instrumental in many of the negotiations that set up the deal. It will be hard for her to say, yes, I agreed. You know, I was for engagement. I was for a deal. I was for you know many of the aspects of this deal. I just am not for the final deal. I think that's a very hard place for her to be if that's where she ends up. And look, Again, this this is by definition speculative, and if she distances herself from the president on the deal, it will be striking not just because of the history that I've just related, but also because she it will be one time where she has not taken the sort of furthest left position available to her. And now the the second part, which is the uh, the way it fits with uh, Hillary Clinton's vision, and I want to reframe it by reminding uh, everyone that just. Two weeks ago, as recently as two weeks ago, people were essentially arguing Hillary Clinton is impervious to events. That doesn't matter what happens, what scandals, she can set her emails on fire while dancing on the, you know, the consulate flag from Benghazi, and there will be no impact in the polls. People, she, they just, they've already made their, their conclusions about her and she's done. But now you've had a set of new polls come out. Her numbers shift very you know, far down. Her, her untrustworthy number, which is already high, has gone even higher. And I wonder if Iran fits in with the uh, email server and the Clinton Foundation, et cetera, that these events are, in fact, catching up with Hillary Clinton, that she can't float above them, that the dirigible of the HMS Clinton is starting to sag under the weight. I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, it, it was it was surprising to me to see otherwise serious people a couple of weeks ago make those arguments. I mean, it, of course these things were going to affect Hillary Clinton. It was it was preposterous to suggest that they weren't. It was just a matter of when and a matter of how much. And we now at least uh, are beginning to get our answers on that. And and the answers for Hillary Clinton are not encouraging. If you look at the CNN ORC poll on the honest and trustworthy question, 38% found her honest and trustworthy. 56% said that she wasn't, which uh, is, if you look at where she was a year ago, those numbers were basically reversed, 59 to 37, a swing of 
40 points. I just find that extraordinary. And you can't tell me that that's just because she's decided to run for president, as her pollster was spinning yesterday on CNN. Of course, these events have had uh, an impact on her. And, and you know, you can point to the, to the email questions where she's badly underwater. You can point to Benghazi where she's badly underwater. If you look at her numbers, again, this is from the CNN ORC poll. If you look at her numbers, May of 2014, May to June of 2014, 43% were satisfied with her answers, 55% dissatisfied. Now those numbers are worse, 38% satisfied, 58% dissatisfied with how she's handled Benghazi. And ironically, talking about offending conventional wisdom, Republicans get good marks for their handling of Benghazi and better marks than they got a year ago. A year ago, 44% said Republicans had gone too far, 48% said they'd handled it well. Today, only 41% said they've gone too far, and a majority, 51%, said Republicans have handled Benghazi appropriately. That's certainly – you don't see that reflected in the news coverage, that's for sure. No, and it really is these kind of two simultaneous universes that aren't communicating. You turn on cable news other than Fox. You turn on the night, you know, the late-night comic shows, and they're talking as though the Republican universe is this raging fire of failure and you know, the Keystone Cops and the love and admiration of the uh, inevitable Hillary flows, you know, that that message continues to flow. And I just wonder when they are going to be affected by the gravity of the facts. Are they, is this, is this going to be the, uh, what was it, Pauline Kale? You know, <laughs> I don't know anyone. You know, is, 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 yeah. is the left going to be this, have, be surprised, this surprised as they were in 1972? That's a good question. I mean, if you look, certainly if you look at the polls, I think people had convinced themselves, and it wasn't just the left, as you point out. It, it was it was sort of members of the mainstream media um, who who had convinced themselves that that Hillary Clinton couldn't sort of go lower, that her numbers really couldn't slip, that opinions of her were so fixed that nobody was going to see her any more negatively. Obviously, that's not been the case. Um, clearly, people have people in the country have concerns about the way she handled Benghazi. You know, some of us thought that was inevitable. There are concerns about the way she handled Benghazi. Uh, they haven't been reported uh, as thoroughly as I think they should have. Um, but ne they're nevertheless having some impact because of the numbers that we're seeing. One last question for you, and this is kind of like a, a, a strategery question, which is on, on the one hand, it's hard to imagine Hillary Clinton running a worse campaign than she's running right now. I mean, do you agree? She's just, I mean, she's the not answering yeah. questions is terrible. The topics, terrible. The, the, her public appearances, terrible. That terrible speech at, in uh, Texas State where the message went out, no questions will be taken. Her speech is the interview. On the other hand, so, the, so one argument is, you know, if someone's, you know, busy digging a hole, just stay out of the way. On the other hand, I happen to think that current events have the most power as they're happening. Doing an ad in October of 2016 will have some impact, but it wouldn't have as much impact as if the Republicans spent some money now, specifically on the Clinton Foundation, which I think is the most emotional, heart, you know, impacting, hard to defend part. Why wouldn't there be ads running right now showing Bill Clinton, Sweden, $26 million hidden, you know, uh, uh, arms deals, Saudi Arabia. These are ugly, indisputable facts. Uh, is Are they thinking that, that the mainstream media is doing a good enough job for right now and they'll come back and revisit it? Or do you think the Republicans should go ahead and add some energy to this while they're hot? 
Yeah, I, I would imagine that the that the theory is, you know, don't don't get in the don't get in the way of your opponent when he or she is having a bad time. Um, and I understand that. And to a certain extent, you can see that if Republicans started to 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 make these attacks and make this seem more political, then the media could trade it as just a you know typical political inside the Beltway fight. Republicans make this claim. Hillary Clinton says this, and and it all sort of gets worn away. While the, the mainstream media, I mean, the New York Times in particular, has done a pretty good job on the, the Clinton email story and the Clinton Foundation story. Having said that, if I'm a, advising a Republican candidate at this point, there's no question I'm talking about this. There's no question it's one of the leading uh, things that I have them say because they're so, you know, the, the facts are so damning in these things. And it's also been so complicated. Uh, you get a new story virtually every day. I mean, it's Sweden one day, it's arms sales in the Gulf the next day, it's uranium and Russia the next day. There's a Canada tie. There's a, you know, one after another after another. You know, if there were a way for a Republican candidate to succinctly um, and powerfully make that, boil that critique down, um, you're darn right they should be making that argument. Steve Hayes, thanks so much for your insights and analysis on this podcast. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.